If you have your Bibles, you can open up with me to Ephesians chapter 6. We'll be looking this evening at Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 to 17. Paul begins this final section of his letter in verse 10 with the word finally. And then, as we'll see, he gives a final exhortation, one final strong encouragement to the church of Ephesus. Basically, what Paul's doing in these verses we're about to read is he's saying, okay, given everything that I have shared with you, all that I have said in the prior five and a half chapters, because of that, finally, my brethren, this is now how you should live. Be strong in the Lord. So beginning in verse 10, we'll go all the way through the end of the chapter, even though this evening we'll only go through verse 17. So Ephesians chapter 6, beginning in verse 10. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth, and having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit which is the word of God. With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit, and with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance and petition for all the saints. And pray on my behalf that utterance may be given to me in the opening of my mouth to make known with boldness the mystery of the gospel, for which I am an ambassador in chains, that in proclaiming it I may speak boldly as I ought to speak. But that you also may know about my circumstances, how I am doing, Tychicus, the beloved brother and faithful minister in the Lord, will make everything known to you. I have sent him to you for this very purpose, so that you may know about us, and that he may comfort your hearts. Peace be to the brethren, and love with faith from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace be with all those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with incorruptible love. Amen. That is God's inspired word to us this evening. So we're looking, verses 10 to 17 this evening, and considering specifically the theme of spiritual warfare. On June 6, 1944, maybe that date rings a bell for some of you, June 6, 1944, thousands and thousands of American troops prepared to storm the beaches of Normandy on D-Day. And as these young men boarded land ships, ships that would take them from the main boats into the beaches, as they boarded these landing boats and braced themselves for what they knew would be a brutal battle, I wonder what sorts of thoughts were going through their head. Imagine that you were in a situation like that. You've now boarded a landing ship. The ship has closed It's working its way toward the beach, and you know that you are headed toward a brutal battle. Perhaps some of them were eager for the fight. 
Maybe some of them understood, this is what I signed up for. I came here for this purpose, to fight this, this sort of battle. I would imagine many of them were full of fear. I would think that most of them were probably thinking of their loved ones, people back home, that they potentially were never going to see again. But whatever their mindset, as they went on these boats toward the beach, preparing for the battle, there was one thing that was certain and common among every single person in those boats. There was no turning back now. They were in the fight. They were headed to the battle, whether they wanted to be or not. And in the same way, as Christians, we need to recognize that whether we want to be or not, we are in the fight. Every single one of us is engaged in a spiritual battle. We are all soldiers in a spiritual war. Day after day, we are on the receiving end of assaults from the enemy, and we are soldiers actively attempting to push forward the kingdom of God. If we're going to thrive as believers, if we're going to thrive in our Christian life, then we must be prepared for the battle. You're in it. Whether you want to be or not, you are in a spiritual battle. And if you're going to thrive as a believer, then you must be prepared for the battle that you are in. In the verses we're looking at this evening, that is Paul's theme. He wants to prepare you for the battle that you are in. He is going to tell us what, what we need to know as believers. He's going to tell us what we need to know in order to stand firm, in order to hold our ground against the onslaught of the enemy. Three times in these verses, you may have noticed, Paul tells us that we're to stand firm. That phrase is repeated three times. Stand firm. It's in verse 11. If you want to look down at your Bibles, you can. Verse 11, Paul says in the second half, so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. And then in verse 13, he says, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day and having done everything, to stand firm. And then he begins verse 14 the same way. Stand firm, therefore. So the theme of these verses is how to stand firm in the middle of a war. How do you stand firm in the middle of a war? And I should say, initially, that there are two dangers, primarily two dangers, when we think about spiritual warfare. I think probably the danger for most of us would be on the one side of just ignoring it altogether of failing to realize the present reality of spiritual warfare in our lives, living our lives as if there weren't really a war going on at all in the spiritual realms. And then the other danger would be becoming so obsessed with it that all you can think about is demonic activity and evil spirits. And so behind everything that you see, you think there's a demon there. Every time something bad happens, it must be because of a demon. Every time there's a sickness, well, that person must have a demon. If a relationship is strained, well, it's because demonic activity is straining the relationship. And so we can be so distracted with an obsession with demonic activity that it pulls us away from the more important things, more significant things in God's Word. We can wrongly attribute demonic activity to things uh, that really are just the result of our own actions or generally life in a fallen world. So Paul is not teaching us then that we should be looking for demonic activity under every single event behind everything that happens. Instead, he is simply saying, you are in a war. 
And as someone who is in a war, you have a real enemy. And as someone who is facing a real enemy, you really need to know how to combat him, how to hold your ground against him, how to brace yourself against his attacks. So that's what we're considering this evening, spiritual warfare. And as we do that, we'll consider it in three different elements, all having to do with this concept of standing firm. So you are to stand firm first against God's enemy. You're to stand firm against God's enemy. And that is especially seen in verses 11 and 12. Stand firm against God's enemy in verses 11 and 12. And then second, we're to stand firm in God's strength. We're to stand firm in God's strength, which is verse 10. And then third, we stand firm in God's armor, which are the remaining verses, verses 13 to 17. We stand firm against God's enemy, in God's strength, and with God's armor. So first, we stand firm against God's enemy. No general would ever go to war, would ever lead his army into war, without a right understanding of the enemy that he's facing. Uh, He would never go into war without understanding the numbers, the weapons, and the general strategies of his enemy. That is setting himself up for defeat. And so in the same way, Paul wants you to enter into or to continue to live in the reality of spiritual warfare with a right understanding of your enemy. And so in verses 11 and 12, he says... Put on the full armor of God so that you will be able to stand firm against the schemes of the devil. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. Who are we up against? Paul says very clearly, you are up against the devil. Many would scoff at that idea today in Contemporary Western culture. They would scoff. They would mock the idea that we are up against a personal devil. The scriptures make very clear that is exactly who we are up against. The devil, God's greatest enemy. He hates God and he will do everything in his power to prevent God's purposes from being accomplished. And because he hates God, he hates you if you're a Christian. You once were one of Satan's subjects. You belong to him. You are in his kingdom. You've been ripped out of that kingdom by the grace of God, and you now are in the kingdom of Christ, and you bear the image of Christ, and Satan can't stand that. And not only is he God's enemy who hates you, but he is God's enemy who is crafty and cunning and deceitful. Paul, Paul says that uh, he calls Satan's strategies, he calls them the schemes of the devil in verse 11. The schemes of the devil... In other words, he's crafty. He's got strategies that are cunning and deceitful and effective. He schemes, and he's good at it. So what are the schemes of the devil? If I were to ask you, what does it mean that the devil is scheming against you from day to day in an attempt to destroy your soul? How would you respond to that? How is Satan trying to destroy your soul today? There's a very good book written by a guy named Thomas Brooks, called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Precious Remedies Against Satan Devices. If if you haven't read that book, I recommend it. In fact, if you really want to read it, you can ask me. I'll give you my copy, notes and all. It's very good. And in that book, what Thomas Brooks is doing 
is he's demonstrating the ways that the devil works in his attempts to destroy the human soul, and he's providing remedies for each of those schemes, or each of his devices. And so he lists a number of strategies that Satan implements in order to try to bring you into ruin and uselessness in the kingdom of God. First and most obviously, Satan tries to entice you to sin. And we, we know that. We see that in the very beginning of the Bible, in the garden. He presents you with the bait, and he hides the hook. He presents you with the cup and says, drink this. It will taste wonderful. And he hides the poison. That's what he did to Adam and Eve in the garden. He does that day after day after day in the Christian life. Secondly, he distracts us with the appeal and the promises of the world. He distracts us from the things of God with the appeal and the promises of the things of this world. He attempts to draw our eyes off of the character and promises of God by convincing us that our souls can be satisfied with the things that this world has to offer us. In in his book, Thomas Brooks, he talks about a time that King Henry IV of France was speaking to the Duke of Alva. And the king asked this duke, he says, he asked him if he had observed the great eclipse of the sun that had recently happened. Apparently there was an eclipse. And so the king asked the duke, did you see the eclipse that that recently happened? And the duke responded, oh no, I have so much to do on earth that I have no leisure to look up to heaven. And Thomas Brooks comments, he says, Oh, that this were not true of most professing Christians in these days. It is very sad to think how their hearts and time are so much taken up with earthly things that they have scarce any leisure to look up to heaven or to look after Christ and the things that belong to their everlasting peace. Satan attempts to distract us with the appeal, the allurement, the promises of the world. Another of his schemes is is he keeps us, he attempts to keep us in a doubting and discouraged state. Satan wants to keep you in a doubting and discouraged state. He will do all he can to plant in your heart doubts about God's character, doubts about even God's existence, and he will do all that he can to keep you in a constant state of discouragement and despair and confusion and questioning whether or not you really have any security at all in Christ. Another of his, others of his schemes that Thomas Brooks mentions, he seeks to cause division among believers. Satan loves to cause division among believers. He tries to rattle our faith through physical affliction and trials like we see in the book of Job. He attempts to convince us that we can, we can always repent later on. There'll always be opportunity to repent in a year or so, down the road. You don't need to repent right now. Don't worry about that. It'll be just as easy to, to turn from your sin and to trust in Jesus down the road. You don't need to worry about that right now. Those are all schemes of Satan to try to ruin your soul. Last quote from Thomas Brooks. He says, Though Satan can never rob a believer of his crown, yet such is his malice and envy that he will leave no stone unturned, no means unattempted, to rob them of their comfort and peace, to make their life a burden and a hell unto them, to cause them to spend their days in sorrow and mourning, in sighing and complaining, in doubting and in questioning. Satan would love to have your heart in that kind of state. Of course, Satan is not omnipresent. He's not God. He's not omnipotent. He does not have all power. He is not in all places. He is simply one fallen angel, the devil. And so how does he carry out 
these schemes that Paul's talking about here. In so many places and in so many people's lives, all at the same time, if Satan is bound by time and space, he's not omnipresent, if he's not limitless in his power, how does he scheme against you and against me? Well, he does so through his armies of fallen spirits. If you look at verse 12, he says, For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness, against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. It's quite a list. What Paul is doing, really, is just describing the same thing in various terms. Some people think that he's describing something of a hierarchical structure among demons or devils or unseen spirits. Perhaps he is, but what's most certain is that he's describing the reality of the unseen spiritual realms and the hosts of unseen wicked armies. Behind much of the evil that's seen in this world, whether it be at the large national level or at the personal level, there is a whole host of powerful, fallen, unseen spirits. That's what Paul is saying. As Joel Beakey puts it, behind our visible enemies of flesh and blood is an army of spiritual, invisible adversaries. Spiritual warfare is a battle against invisible enemies with invisible weapons who oppose the cause and kingdom of Jesus Christ. So Satan has an army of unseen spirits. It's said, apparently, that during the Vietnam War, when soldiers were fighting the Viet Cong, it was like fighting phantoms. Some called them phantom fighters. American soldiers said that they were fighting with an unseen army. They had an unseen enemy. They knew the VC were there. They knew they were hidden in the trees and in the spider holes dug into the ground, all around them, all throughout the jungle. But they never knew at any point in time when or from what direction the attack would come. They were fighting an unseen army, like phantoms. And when the attack came against the troops, as they worked their way through the jungles, they could see the effects of the weapons, they saw the devastation that it caused, but they very rarely were able to see the people behind the weapons, the ones actually firing them. They only saw the effects of the warfare. And in a very sense, in a very real sense, we as Christians are fighting against an unseen enemy. We are fighting against phantom fighters. We can't see them, but we know from God's word that they're there. We aren't fighting a visible enemy, but the damage and the devastation that's caused both in our own hearts and in our relationships and on national levels makes evident that the enemy is there and that he's at work. And the first step then in understanding our enemy and understanding what it is to stand firm against him is understanding his power, understanding his tactics, understand that he is scheming ceaselessly to ruin your soul. And he's using his hosts of unseen armies to do it. So Paul tells us first then to stand firm against God's enemy. But thankfully, that's not all he says. That wouldn't leave us with much hope if that's all that he said. But he tells us that we can stand firm against God's enemies because we stand in God's strength. So second, stand firm in God's strength. That's in verse 10. If you look with me in Ephesians 6 verse 10. Paul says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. So we've just seen something of the power and the presence of our enemy. 
So the question then naturally is, how can we be confident in the face of an enemy like Satan? What basis do we have as small little Christians who struggle day in and day out with our own weaknesses, how can we have confidence that we have any ability to stand firm against a foe as mighty as Satan? And Paul's saying our confidence is that, first, God is infinitely stronger than our foe. And second, the strength that we stand in is the strength that we have by virtue of our union with Christ. Our God is infinitely strong, and we are united to him. That's what Paul is saying. Or in the words of the Apostle John, 1 John chapter 4, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. We have a greater God than we do an enemy. But the question is this. On a practical level, as you go about your day-to-day life, what does it mean for you to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might? How are you personally striving to be strong in the Lord And in the strength of his might. When you are overwhelmed by temptations and doubts and afflictions and trials, when you are face to face with spiritual attacks, when you are shaking in your own weakness and fear, what does it look like for you personally to be strong in the Lord? I believe what Paul is teaching here is simply this we stand in strength in those moments by actively remembering the union that we have with his Son. You stand in strength in times of weakness. At all times, you stand in strength by remembering that you are united to the mighty Son of God. Paul says, be strong in the Lord, verse 10. Be strong in the Lord. And we've seen throughout the book of Ephesians that this phrase, in the Lord, refers over and over again to our union with Jesus Christ. In Christ In the Lord, we've seen it over and over through the book of Ephesians, it always refers to you being joined to Jesus. It's talking about being inseparably bound to him through faith so that every single saving benefit of Christ is applied to your life. Union with Christ. Really, the whole letter of Ephesians could be summed up with the phrase, in Christ. Paul's whole point throughout the letter of Ephesians has been to convince you of your identity as someone who is united to Jesus. I'm going to list a number of passages now. It's a pretty long list, so bear with me. And perhaps I'll lose you about halfway through it. But the point is, just so you can hear how many different things the Apostle Paul says are true of you because you're united to Christ. So bear with me. I'm going to read a list of things. This is every, not everything. This is some of what the Apostle Paul says in the book of Ephesians about what is true of you because you're united to Jesus. He says, in Christ, you are blessed with every single spiritual blessing in chapter 1, verse 3. He says, in Christ, you are chosen by God to be holy and blameless. In Christ, you are adopted by God as a beloved child. In Christ, you are a recipient of boundless, unlimited grace. And favor from God. In Christ, you are redeemed and you are fully forgiven by God. In Christ, you are an heir of eternal inheritance. In Christ, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. In Christ, you are God's treasured possessions. He delights in you. In Christ, you receive God's unmatched power. The same power that raised Jesus from the dead is granted to you because of your union with Jesus. In Christ, you've been raised from the dead. 
you've been made alive forever together with him. In Christ, you've been seated at the right hand of God with Christ so that you are the recipient of every last benefit of salvation. In Christ, you are a new creation for the sake of Christ, his workmanship to be used for his purposes. In Christ, you've been brought near to God, though you were once far off by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, you've been reconciled to God. You've been given eternal peace with him by the blood of Jesus. In Christ, you've been given confident access to your Father by the Spirit. In Christ, you've been made a citizen of God's kingdom. In Christ, you've been made a member of God's family. In Christ, you've been made an heir of God's promises. In Christ, you have been made a member of his body. In Christ, you are loved with a love that exceeds comprehension. In Christ, you will be forever the display of the riches of God's wisdom and power. Certainly the list from Ephesians could go on with regard to what it is to be in Christ. But I hope that paints the picture somewhat. Paul wants you to understand who you are in Christ. The whole book of Ephesians is telling you, this is who you are. This is what God has done for you in Christ. This is your identity. And now as we get to chapter 6, he wants us to look into the face of our enemy, the devil himself and all the hosts of his wicked armies. He wants us to look into the face of our enemy and stand firm and be strong in the reality of that union. Be strong in the Lord. Know your identity. Rest. Be strong in who you are in Christ. Because we know that there is nothing, no strategy of hell that could ever separate us from him, that could ever break the union that we share with Jesus. We've had a groundhog living in our backyard for the past few years. We've even named him. And uh, we've tried to trap him. At one point, we set a trap out there by the shed and we called a skunk instead. And so now we've basically just tossed it up as he's part of the family. He lives under our shed. He walks around our backyard. He's, he's there to stay. So his hole is in the back left of the yard under the shed. But occasionally this groundhog, he'll work his way up into the yard and he'll walk around and kind of meander through eating uh, acorns or whatever else he can get a hold of. And sometimes while we're eating dinner, we'll look outside and we'll see him there. And if you've ever seen, have you ever seen a groundhog run as fast as he can? It's funny. It's very funny to watch. And so sometimes uh, we, we like to get up from the dinner table and go to the back door and open it up and yell at him. And, uh, and we want to make him run. We want to scare him. And it is amazing how fast a groundhog can move. I mean, like, their bodies are that tall, and, and when they run, their little squatty legs, are just, they go so fast. And, and he just he doesn't even look up, so he hears the door open like the little clicking sound that it makes, before we even have to yell, he's gone. I mean, he has darted for his hole. He doesn't look up. He doesn't care who's there. He's going back to safety as fast as he can. As Christians, we should be like groundhogs. That's my point. We can learn something from how quickly that groundhog runs back to the place of safety and security. It's not that we should be overcome by fear like he is. I can just imagine him sitting in his groundhog hole with a heart beating like, what was that? We're not to be like that, not trembling in fear. But when we consider the enemy that we're against, we should run as fast as we can to the only place of refuge and safety, which is our union with Jesus. 
We face a great enemy. He would devour you in a moment. If you are not in Christ, Satan will devour you in a moment. You have no power to stand against him. But if you are in Christ, there is nothing that can touch you. Not ultimately. Satan can do all sorts of different things to you now under the sovereignty of Christ, but he can never disrupt your union with Jesus. And so we should be quick to run back to that union. We should run to the place of safety. We should set our minds and our hearts on the reality of what Paul has told us by the inspiration of the Spirit of God in Ephesians about who we are in Christ. We should remember our union. We should run there quickly at all times when we consider the enemy that we're up against. That's how we stand firm in God's strength. That's how we're strong in God's strength. Strength is not a matter of you exerting all of your power. Strength is a matter of you running to refuge in the power of Christ. We stand firm in God's power as we stand firm against God's enemy. And then lastly, we stand firm with God's armor. We stand firm with God's armor in verses 13 to 17. Paul writes, Therefore take up the full armor of God, so that you will be able to resist in the evil day, and having done everything, to stand firm. We'll go through those verses in just a moment as we look at each individual article of armor that he describes. But Paul is telling us, take up the armor of God. Put it on. Put every single article of armor on as you stand in this fight against Satan. As Paul writes this letter, we know that he's in prison. He says that a number of times in this letter. He's writing this letter from a prison cell. He's guarded by Roman soldiers. And so as he's in this prison cell, writing this letter, he's very likely looking at the Roman soldier that's guarding him. And, and many think he's probably observing the armor that the soldier is wearing. And as he pins these different items of armor, he's taking each article and applying it to some aspect of the Christian life. And so we're to stand firm as we put on these various pieces of armor that Paul describes. And first, he describes the belt of truth. He says in verse 14a, Stand firm, therefore, having girded your loins with truth. Having girded your loins with truth. So Roman soldiers wore long tunics that went nearly down to their feet. And as they prepared for battle in order to be able to maneuver far more easily, they pulled their tunics up and they tucked them into their belts so that they were quick and agile in the battle. If a soldier was caught unprepared with his tunic down, his movement was restricted, he would have been at a, at a pretty significant disadvantage against his enemy. And the point that Paul is making here is that we as believers cannot be caught unprepared. We must not be caught unprepared for the battle. We should be ready and prepared for the fight. We should have girded the loins of our minds. We should have been girded specifically with the truth. We are prepared for battle when we gird ourselves with the truth. If something other than the truth of God is shaping our thinking, if we've been numbed to God's truth, if we've been distracted by principles of this world to the degree that our minds and our hearts are being shaped by something other than God's word, then we are easy targets in the fight. We will be easily disoriented in the midst of temptations. We will lack wisdom and understanding when it comes to the point of making decisions. We'll be forgetful of who God is. We'll wonder and question whether or not we can really trust him. When the truth of God is not reigning in our minds and on our hearts, 
we are easy targets for the enemy. We must gird our loins, Paul says, with the belt of truth. And then second, we must put on the breastplate of righteousness, he says in the second half of verse 14. Put on the breastplate of righteousness. Satan wants to get to your heart. That's his goal. He wants to get to your heart. That's the vital part of who you are. Breastplates were designed to protect the vital organs. Satan wants to get to your heart, the vital part of your being. He wants you to doubt. He wants you to despair, as we've already seen. He wants you to question God's faithfulness. He wants, to question, he wants you to question your security in Christ. And we can only protect ourselves, we can only protect our hearts from the attacks and accusations of Satan by putting on the breastplate of righteousness, which is the righteousness of Christ. Christ lived a perfectly righteous life. And he died in the place of sinners. And now, as we put our faith in Jesus, as we trust in him for our salvation, his righteousness, this perfect life of righteousness, is credited to us. You are treated by God not only if you are in Christ, trusting in him, you are treated by God not only as if you've never sinned. That would be amazing if you just got a clear slate. But that's not true of you. God not only treats you like you've never sinned, he treats you as if you had lived the perfect life of his son, his righteousness. We guard our hearts from the accusations of Satan through the reality of the righteousness of Christ that is now ours through faith. As Satan fires his attacks at your heart, as he accuses you with doubts and guilt and despair, we put up the guard of the righteousness of Christ. As we've already sung and before the throne of God above, when Satan tempts me to despair and tells me of the guilt within, upward I look and see him there who made an end of all my sin. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on him and pardon me. We must put on the breastplate of the righteousness of Christ. And then third, we should put on gospel shoes. Verse 15. And having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. Shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace. My kids and I were watching a basketball game, a college basketball game a few weeks ago. And one of the players' shoes fell off in the middle of the game. And, and for a, a long time, like uh, probably close to 30 seconds, he was trying to get his shoe back on and he could not get it on. And the best that he could do was get it on about halfway onto his foot with the heel folded down and his heel on top of it. And so he's kind of got like a slipper of a tennis shoe on trying to play. And it went on that way for, for a couple of minutes with him trying to play with his shoe half on, folded underneath of his foot. Uh, and it was funny to watch him try to maneuver. I mean, basketball requires a good bit of footwork, and he did not have it. He was at a disadvantage until he was finally able to get his shoe all the way back on his foot. As we go into battle, we are at a disadvantage immediately if we have not shod our feet with the shoes of the gospel of peace. If we walk out of our door in the morning, in fact, if we open our eyes from sleep in the morning, and we have not shotted our feet, not really a word we use, if we have not put shoes on our feet, and if those shoes are not the gospel of the peace that is ours in Christ, then we are setting ourselves up for attack and vulnerability to it. We will lack the spiritual agility to dodge the darts of the enemy. 
The gospel is a gospel of peace. In chapter 2, Paul tells us Christ came preaching peace. And he has established peace between you and God through his blood. And he has established peace with one another as believers through his blood. The gospel is a gospel of peace. And every day, we ought to remind ourselves. We ought to put on our feet the shoes of the gospel of peace. I, through Christ, am at peace with God. His wrath has been satisfied. His fury has been quenched because he poured it out on his son. Christ has established peace between me and God. We, start, we stand firm against Satan's attacks when we walk in the light of the gospel of peace. Not only that, but we advance the kingdom of God through the proclamation of the gospel of peace. We push back the enemy's kingdom as we put on the shoes of the gospel of peace and we proclaim it. And then fourth, the shield of faith. Paul says in verse 16, In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith, with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Satan is good at shooting flaming arrows at us at well-timed, uh, in, well, in a well-timed way, in a well-calculated way. He's good. He's skilled at knowing what particular patterns in your life expose your weaknesses and attacking you with his fiery arrows in those specific places with his lies. What's our defense against the lies of Satan at those times? Paul says we, we hold up the shield of faith. The shield that Paul's talking about here was probably about two or three feet wide and about four feet tall. So one that you could put your whole body behind as you fought off the fiery darts of Satan. Faith takes Jesus at his word. What is faith? Faith takes Jesus at his word. It believes what Jesus has said, and it trusts in what Jesus says, and it needs nothing more than that. No matter how we may feel in the moment, we hear the voice of Jesus on the pages of the scriptures, and we believe it, and we take him at his word. That's faith. A person who is hoping in Jesus has an impenetrable shield held up against the fiery darts of Satan. Behind that shield, I mean, it's, again, a large shield, there may be the weakest, most trembling saint in all the earth. But his shield is the same. And it's not because of the strength of his faith, it's because of Christ in whom his faith is placed. Because their confidence is directed away from themselves and toward their mighty and loving Savior. Because they believe Jesus, even though they do it tremblingly, Satan is ultimately powerless to strike them with his lies. His lies, his lies have no effect on a heart that is resting in the truth of Christ. You hold up the shield of faith. Next, the helmet of salvation. Verse 17. The first part of the verse says, And take the helmet of salvation. And that's it. Take the helmet of salvation. So speaking here, Paul is speaking here specifically of future salvation. We know that we have been saved in Christ. We've been forgiven and justified and united to Jesus. No further work needs to be done for our salvation. We are saved. We are being saved. He is continually rescuing us day after day from sin. And we will be saved one day, finally and fully, at the return of Christ. We'll be delivered from every form of suffering and sin. Paul speaking here of that future salvation. The day when we will be fully and finally delivered from everything that is not the way it's supposed to be. 
And I say that because in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, and verse 8, Paul says, put on as a helmet, very similar, put on as a helmet, the hope of salvation. The hope of salvation. He's not talking about the, he's, he's not communicating um, the idea as if salvation were questionable, like we're hoping salvation might be true, but the certain hope, the, the certainty that we will finally be rescued from everything that is wrong, all of our sin, all of our suffering, we will be fully delivered. That is our hope of salvation in the future. And Paul's telling us that we should protect ourselves. We should put on the helmet of salvation in the sense that we protect ourselves from Satan's attacks by remembering the certainty of the final outcome. Discouragement makes us very vulnerable. That's why Satan wants to keep you in a discouraged state. It makes you very vulnerable. When you are overwhelmed with discouragement and despair and a lack of desire to keep moving forward because you've given hope that anything in you or about you will ever change, then you're a very easy target for Satan. When those doubts take root, when we, when we allow ourselves to fall into the despair and hopelessness of discouragement, then we're also opening up our hearts to all kinds of other sins like bitterness. Bitterness against God for putting us in the situation we're in. Bitterness against others for making our life so hard. Bitterness against Christ, the gospel, the church, truth. Bitter. We can just become bitter people because we've allowed discouragement to take root in our hearts. It can be the cause of laziness. Why try? Why put forth any effort when nothing's ever going to change? Discouragement breeds further unbelief. Further doubt, and Satan would love to stir that up in your heart. And so instead, we're to guard our helmets, we're to put on this helmet of salvation as we remember day after day after day the certainty of our full and final redemption. The work that Christ has begun in you, he will perfect. God will not leave the work that he's begun in you unfinished. He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus or in the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Timothy, For I know whom I have believed, and I am convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. You remember, Christ is faithful. He will hold you fast. You could never keep your hold. Through life's stormy blast, Christ must hold you fast, and he will. He will hold you firm until the end. You put on the helmet of salvation. And then lastly, the sword of the Spirit. Second half of verse 17 and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. The word of, the, the word of God is called the sword of the Spirit for two reasons. First, the Word of God is called the sword of the Spirit because it is breathed out by the Spirit. He gave it to us. It is inspired by the Holy Spirit. The words that we have on the pages of the Bible are the words of the Spirit. And then second, the Word of God is the sword of the Spirit because it's what the Spirit uses as His weapon to overthrow the forces of evil. It's what the Spirit uses to advance the kingdom of God in this world, His Word. And so both because the Spirit inspired it and because it is His weapon of choice for the advancement of the kingdom, the Word is called the sword of the Spirit. Satan is utterly powerless against the faithful wielding of the sword of the Spirit. He has no power to push back the kingdom of God as it advances through the Word. As we are faithful to open our mouths and to speak, and as God's Spirit is pleased to use that 
to save hearts, to convert sinners, to convict of sin, to move forward the righteousness of his kingdom. There is nothing that Satan can do to slow that down. It is the sword of the Spirit. We're to take it up. We're to go to war. So to bring it all back together then, what does it look like to take the armor of God? To take it up, to clothe yourself with it? Well, it means the truth of God. Gird your loins with the truth of God. You are conscious of his truth. You put on the righteousness of Christ. You, you put on the shoes of the gospel of peace. You never leave your bed in the morning without reminding yourself of the peace that's been established through Christ. You put up the shield of faith. You hold up that faith against every last fiery dart the enemy might throw at you. You hope in the certain and final outcome of your salvation. And you wield the word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. Ultimately, all of those point us to the person of Jesus. Every single one of those is describing something that is true about Jesus. In fact, if you have at least an NASB translation, you'll notice that many of these verses have all caps. Do you see that in your Bibles? Verses 14, 15, 16, uh, or verses 14, 15, and 17, all of them have all caps. And what that's telling us is that that's a quote from the Old Testament. And the quotes come from the book of Isaiah. And in the book of Isaiah, all of those quotes are referring to the Messiah. All of these things are telling us something about Christ. He is the one that has armed himself with the full armor of God. He's the one who girds himself with the belt of truth. He put on the breastplate of his own perfect and spotless righteousness. He's the one who came proclaiming peace and establishing peace. He's the one who put up the shield of faith as he trusted in his Father despite all the ceaseless, fiery darts of Satan trying to lead him away from his Father's will. He's the one who came wearing the helmet of salvation, bringing salvation for his people. He's the one who fought off Satan time and time again with the sword of the Spirit. As we strive to put on the armor of God, what we're really doing is striving to imitate our Savior. That's all we're doing. We're trying to be like Christ. We're remembering who he is, and we are imitating him in the way that he walked in this world, fully armed with the armor of God. Our confidence against the enemy at all times is simply this. Christ overcame on your behalf. Christ has overcome for you. He is the soldier and the true victor. He's the one who crushed the serpent's head, and he's the one who put the rulers and authorities to open shame, Paul says in Colossians. He he made a disgrace of the rulers and the authorities through the cross. And our confidence as believers is that as we walk through this dark world in the midst of a serious and real spiritual war, we do so in the very armor that Christ himself gives us. We have the responsibility to take it up day after day, to remind ourselves who we are in Christ and to clothe ourselves with the armor of Christ. So in conclusion, you have a great foe, the devil. He would love to ruin you. And day after day, he is attempting to ruin you. He is scheming against you. He is tempting you. He is alluring you with the appeals of this world. He is trying to keep you in a state of doubt and despair and unbelief and discouragement and to lead you in to what will destroy you and others in the kingdom of God. We have a strong and a mighty foe. 
But we have a stronger and a mightier Christ, a far greater Savior. He has put the armor on for us. He has walked in our place. He has conquered the enemy. And we're now called to walk in him, to put him on, to be strong in our union with Jesus, and to put on his armor as we fight against our foe. If you're not in Christ, then I would encourage you this evening to recognize the enemy that you're against and to point out also that your enemy is not only Satan, but if you're not a Christian, if you are not trusting in Jesus, then you have an even greater enemy than Satan. Satan would love to destroy your soul if you're not a Christian. But the reality is, your ultimate enemy at this point in your life because of your sin is God himself. He is at enmity with you because of your sin until you repent of it and until you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Christ died. He gave up his life. He bore the wrath of his Father to remove the enmity that's there. If you're not in Christ, that enmity remains. But if you put your faith in Jesus, the hostility between you and God is removed. He establishes peace between you and your maker. And you too can clothe yourself in this kind of armor, this union with Christ, this peace that comes from knowing him as your Savior. The devil is a great foe. If you're not in Christ, God is a greater foe right now. But he loves you and he is calling you to repent. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you especially, God, for the provision that you have made for us through Christ to be forgiven of our sins and to be rescued from the enemy. We thank you that we once lived in the dominion of darkness, but you have taken us out of that kingdom, and you have transferred us into a brand new kingdom, the kingdom of your Son. We thank you that we live as soldiers in his army. We thank you that you equip us with all the armor that we need through our union with Jesus. We pray, Father, help us to be good soldiers in this life. Help us to wage war effectively and help us to stand firm against all the schemes of the enemy as we take refuge in Jesus. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.